That there is the sound of a Mongolian family tromping around in the snow on the steppe, selecting a goat for a traditional bow dog roast. It's from one of our earliest videos at Roads and Kingdoms, and the woman who actually helped make it happen was a Korean-American who lived in nearby Darkhan, Mongolia. Michelle Borok is one of something like 9 million Americans who live overseas. Nobody's quite sure how many there are, and nobody cares too much to count them. But one thing is certain, they are a more diverse group than you might think. This week, I'm talking with three American women, writers all, about what it's like to be Korean-American or Arab-American or Black-American, watching all this nonsense from far away. I'll start with Ruth Terry in Istanbul, who talks about anti-blackness among white Americans overseas and about her dreams for what travel writing could be in a post-lockdown, post-colonial world. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, The World on Lockdown. Now here is Ruth Terry. I noticed that you cover uh, wellness uh, quite a bit, uh, along with travel and, and uh, other topics. How, how yeah. are you dealing, being so far away, looking at all of this, uh, this craziness and the murders uh, here in the States? Um, well, I guess I'll start by saying, like, I have, um, ADHD, anxiety, and, um, a history of depression. So, um, managing that is always, like, that's always kind of, like, the, the, you know, foundation of my wellness practice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and it's been really interesting, like, first with the pandemic, like, I thought I'd have a lot of anxiety related to that. Nope, nothing. My ADHD out of control. <laughs> it's like okay, gave so, you a, a canvas to sort of work on of uh, things to, things to control uh, and and yeah, no, it turns out like the anxiety. I'm totally prepared for a pandemic because that's like <laughs> worst possible scenario. Thinking is yeah, I have years of practice of that. So I have um, you know I have heard that from other people who said that you know I've been dealing with anxiety. Welcome, welcome to my world. I'm you know. <laughs> I've, I've been practicing for this. Right. Moment. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, I haven't had, um, I had a little bit of depression this week, um, after just like seeing a lot of the protest stuff and my dad is African American and lives near Minneapolis. And, um, he had a stroke last year and he's, he's doing very well. Um, Sorry and, to hear that. um, thanks. Um, he's doing really well. It didn't affect his mind. He has like some paralysis or whatever, but I actually like found myself like telling my partner like, Oh, good thing. My dad had a stroke. He won't be driving near Minneapolis and won't get shot. And like, mm. that's so messed up. That's, that's yeah, so a, messed up. What a thing like, to count as a blessing, huh? Right? Like, Ooh, silver lining on the stroke. I catch myself kind of having thoughts like that. And, and that kind of, you know, that rocked me a little bit, like, to think about, and to think about how close he was to danger, I guess, like, knowing kind of what we know now about the Minneapolis police force and, like, how they've had this sort of history of um, sort of violence and over-policing, you know, and um, with black men and black people. 
I'm very, very privileged to not have had any like overtly horrific experiences with police, but like I'm supposed to go back to the US in September for, you know, some work and to see family and everything. And now I'm kind of nervous because like the things that like were the things that I thought were, you know, significant yet, you know, sort of isolated incidents, like now I'm really reading them and seeing them as like connected to like this larger sort of toxic culture within police and within like the police as a, as an organization. Um, so it's scary. You're so far away, but you know, you're on Twitter, you're part of all the conversations, you know, you get to Mm. kind of be a part of the whole discussion flow. Do you, do you feel a little bit less far because of that? Do you wish you felt farther (laughs) in some ways? Um, well, getting back to, to your sort of wellness um, question. Like I actually had to put a limit on myself for social media this week and kind of did a little bit of a fast. Like I can't completely not do it because I mean, it's part of my job as a writer, but, um, so I really tried to like limit, um, my engagement on social media and cut down on like, you know, educating people about things. Um, and, so yeah, it's been, it's been a little bit surreal with a distance. I almost feel like, I mean, social media is so immediate and like the visuals on things are so immediate, like in the news now and like, um, you know, how protest is captured has such an immediacy to it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And like being this far, there's like this kind of weird disconnect. It's like leading a double life almost because in some ways I feel like I'm kind of there and then not and I think also too like the pandemic has it's sort of messed with time anyway um <laughs> that, that so is a fact I was like coming after the pandemic I just like I don't know which way is up I don't know which way is down like what time it is what day it is so it's yeah it's like in a, a weird way like on the one hand like all that I'm doing for work and like all that I'm reading and keeping up with the news is like sort of like compressing the distance so much and then I feel so so far away physically and like and culturally and like um you know because of social distancing like I can't get together with like other black people really like I'm Mm. I'm in this network of like um african-american and some women from africa like um this group and we we can't get together so it's like we're so close to each other like relatively like physically we're all in istanbul within like you know 45 minutes of each other but we can't get together so like that's been right so you you have to kind of get your get your love and support virtually uh i think one of the things that that i've been noting a lot kind of in in uh conversations and online is this sort of burden of explanation uh that falls on Black Americans a lot. Uh, I think being overseas, it's kind of a special burden. I find it harder to deal with white American and British expats, I think, (laughs) than um, locals. There is kind of a sort of misunderstanding about... There's. I've heard from some Turkish people that I've talked to... um, they're like, well, we don't have race issues here. Like, we don't... That's, like, a uniquely American problem. Right. Which isn't actually true. There's um, racism. It, it, uh, 
manifest differently, but it's still racism against black people. I feel like anti-blackness is global. It's not just an American problem. Like I have this this kind of working theory about white expats that like their racial discourse kind of like that learning stopped whenever they moved to their other country. So to their host country, because like at least for like the Americans that I know, like they'll they have um, maybe like a really strong background in like feminism or um, you know like civil rights. They're you know they're up on that, but like anything that happened after that and like how things have changed and like sort of looking at things intersectionally and um, more structurally, like that's not everyone has kept up with the work because you don't have to. You know, there's not that many black expats and like it's if you come from sort of like, you know, middle class or upper upper middle class background, like I think a lot of what white expats do, like you probably haven't been around black people and it's not like you're going to start seeking them out when you move to Turkey. So like I think there's there's even less of an incentive to do that work. The 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 sweet lure of of the fiction of, you know, or of being able to ignore uh, all, all of our racial bullshit is is very strong, you know, and I can imagine that if you're a, a white American living overseas, you can really get sucked into that um, and just saying it doesn't touch you anymore. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, there's like this attitude that like you're already open to new cultures, like you move to a new culture. Maybe you have like a Turkish partner and you work with Turkish people and like you eat Turkish food. And so there's like, I think that might in some ways be a hindrance because it's like, I don't need to do that work because I'm already multicultural, you yeah. know, I, I get it. And it's like, well, no. That's why this, <laughs> this yeah, this phrase anti-blackness that I think is is really popping up and I think really useful in this moment is is interesting because it, it, it kind of removes a shield for people who would say, well, yeah, I, I'll eat this shit out of some donor kebab. <laughs> so right? <I> must... <laughs> Well, all right. Well, since you and I both work in the same business uh, on a professional <laughs> level, kind of what's your career path been in terms of writing and, and journalism and what would you like to see it become? So I guess last summer I was at home and on Medium, this magazine called Human Parts um, put out a call for pitches um, along uh, for a series called The Art Of. And it could be like the art of flower arranging, the art of, you know, I don't know, stamp collecting, all these, you know, whatever. Mm, and yeah. so I was like, I don't know if I'm good at anything like that good enough at something to do that. But then, you know, most ideas come to me in the shower. So I'm in the shower and I'm like, yeah, I'm great at being black and white spaces. So I was <laughs> like, oh, I'll pitch them that, you know, kind of on a whim. Cause I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not what they had in mind, but whatever. Flower and, ranching, being black and white spaces, uh, the, the various crafts of American domestic life, huh? Right. And so I pitched it and it ended up being like stuff. The editor editor there was amazing. Like she really helped me craft this personal essay. And that's not something that I'd really that wasn't a genre I'd written in before. And like I never set out to write about race. Like I've like I don't come from a family of activists. I don't we didn't talk about race all the time at home. Like this isn't like in a way like I'm I'm still learning a lot alongside of like all the you know, with the protests like a lot of the things that are new to white people are new to me. Cause like, I don't, you know, I don't have, and like education in America doesn't teach you like all the kind of nuances of how we got to where we are today. So like, in a way, I think that actually helps me write about it. Cause I'm, I think I can be a little bit more approachable. Um, hmm. 
but yeah, so that was kind of my first article on race. And then I kind of realized like, as, as a writer, I'm kind of coming back around to what drew me to nonprofit work that kind of equity and inclusion, the stories that I want to tell are these stories that are kind of that have traditionally been outside the the typical travel canon, which is very, to me, very destination focused. And it, it's weird because I love writing about travel, but I don't love reading travel writing all that much because a lot of it, <laughs> a lot of it is just like, you know, random, like, no offense, but like white guy goes to like so-and-so and like, you know, figures out such and such and like, it, None taken. You know, that is that is the format. That's the genre. Um, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, I guess that's that's the tension, right? Of like what has been there before, and trying to envision what it could be in the future, and how you fit into that, knowing yeah. that they're going to be different. Well, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about it, like during the pandemic, and the kinds of stories that I might want to tell with travel, and like. And before the pandemic as well. But like, I think the travel industry itself is probably going to be moving towards like, you know, road trips are supposed to be, you know, coming up and as a thing that people want to do or very um, location specific, like nanotourism. I just was like participated in this online symposium about that, like um, these really place based experiences where residents kind of invite people to have a certain experience instead of travel being something that happens to them. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh yeah. We've been, we've been thinking so much about that and just in terms of who, you know, who sets the table, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. like on what terms, because, um, you know, at its, at its worst travel can be a very non-consensual <laughs> sort of taking of an experience versus really sitting down and, and, you know, having both sides get something from it. One of the speakers talked about tra- the travel industry as really being an extractive industry, and I'd never really thought of it that way. The way like oil is an extractive industry, where like you you're going there's there's a destination and you take something out of it, and like what you give back is so much less. Like, and the people that are there don't really get anything out of it, um, and the money that you spend there, like the I guess like classic example is like cruise ship travel. It's like you have people that you know totally mob Venice or like some other, you know, ports of call or whatever. And like, you know, they spend $10 on a hamburger and like some souvenirs and then they leave, you know, meanwhile, the ecosystems like totally degraded and like the waterways are all polluted now and, and all this stuff. So like thinking about travel and stories that we can tell and travel experiences that we can make people want to have or, or get people's interest. Um, you know, in a non-damaging way is, is something I'm really looking forward to and kind of seeing as a post-pandemic opportunity mm. where it's just not, it's wildly inappropriate for everyone to go back to traveling the way we did last year. Sarah Suli is an Arab-American journalist from Philadelphia. Her father's from Tunisia and her mother's from France. She covered the aftermath of the Arab Spring while living in Cairo years ago, and now she is watching whatever this is, maybe, just maybe, it's an American Spring, from her home in Athens. How are you feeling about Tunisia now, and, and how does how does your experience as a Tunisian play into viewing this okay. here in the States? Yeah, um, well, I remember the day um, 
that Ben Ali fell in Tunisia. I was still in college and I remember my dad called me totally euphoric. Um, you know, my dad, I got a lot of my political education um, and my leftist political education from, from my father and I'm in incredibly grateful for, for that. And I can still remember kind of stopping in the middle of my campus and just feeling so overwhelmingly happy, like I was living through this, even though I was thousands of miles away, I was living through this historic moment. And I called my father a few days ago because, um, yeah, I was really interested in hearing from like my old lefty dad, how he thinks of what's going on in the U.S. And the first thing he said, we were we were on the phone and he was like, well, it's about time with a huge smile on his face. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I was so happy to get that that reaction from him. And I think something else for for people um, who who have either been oppressed or marginalized kind of across the globe, there is kind of this feeling of solidarity. That isn't to say that there aren't huge problems of racism in, in Tunisia specifically, to take that as an example. Um, but there is kind of this, this cross-border solidarity and understanding that the kind of the roots and the, the, this very tightly knotted net of, of racism and, and political violence is something that a lot of people around the world um, are feeling at the same time. This quote, hope is a discipline that's attributed to Mariam Kaba. I think that's something that's always really struck me in my reporting in Tunisia, in Palestine, and also in Greece working with refugees is that like, no matter how terrible most people's situations are, there is always kind of this kernel of hope that things are going to change. Um, and people are quite active in, in acting upon, upon that sense of hope. Um, and I think the other thing too is like, you know, four months ago, we did not think that we would be quarantined and lo locked down for all these months and there'd be a global pandemic and we'd have doctors working in trash bags. And we also didn't think two weeks ago that, you know, we'd have these massive protests in the U.S. and people coming out and and behaving in a way that, um, you know, to me as an American abroad, this is really, I would say, like the first time since I left almost 10 years ago that I'm like, damn, I wish I was in America right now. Like, I haven't had that thought in a long time. Tell me about your, your life in Athens. When I, when I hit you up about coming on the show, you, uh, you, know, you sent back greetings from uh, the anarchist stronghold. <laughs> well, like all journalists who came from North Africa or the Middle East, I live in Exarchia, which is a neighborhood in Athens that historically has been a center of um, left-wing political resistance um, and sort of student activism. And Greece has an amazing history of protest. Um, just from my, uh, like the way that I categorize, like who are the most badass protesters that I've encountered, I would say first are the Palestinians, mostly because they just have like too many decades under their belt of protesting. Um, the Greeks come in second, and then I would say the Egyptians, but the Greeks are like really really hardcore protesters. So we have a couple of dates that are really important here in, in Greece. Um, and one of them is the 6th of December. That's from 2008 when there was a, um, it, it was an amalgamation of a couple of things, including the financial crisis and um, the, um, the corruption that was coming out of the Greek government uh, when they went into the EU. Uh, and also the death of a 15-year-old boy called Alexandros Grigoropoulos. Um, and one thing that's hmm. not 
not funny, I guess sort of darkly funny, is when I speak to my Greek friends, you know, they had one kid that was killed by the police 12 years ago. And every year on the 6th of December, it is a huge protest and they burn Athens to the ground. That's maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but there's just so much anger that there was a Greek citizen, especially a child that was killed by the police, you know? And when they look at what happens in the U.S. and they're like, how many? I mean, since 2015, there's been, what, 1,500 black Americans, at least, who've been killed by the police? Like, they can't even... Like, they can't even fathom, let's say, that it took this long for us to to reach this breaking point. It's completely shocking. But, I mean, how many people have been killed since the uprisings began? I mean, we lost, a uh, not a kid, but, a, you know, a young man in, in prison in, in Sunset Park last night. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think it's really, like, I've just been watching on loop, like, all of these videos of, of police brutality. I don't, like, I, I will say as a journalist, like, unless I have to for my work, watch some kind of video of someone being murdered, I, I don't watch it otherwise. But I have been watching kind of these videos of police just I mean, pepper spraying peaceful demonstrators in the face, hitting them with batons, like six police officers on one person. It's really, um, it's really shocking. I shouldn't say that it's shocking, actually. It's really kind of normal to see. But I will say that the amount of imagery that's that's coming out um, is is a bit overwhelming. Yeah. So how do you how do you manage you 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 feel like you want to be back here now for the first time in in, in a long time? Uh, Is 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 that a passing uh, thought or um, are there conditions of 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 necessary revolution here? Your 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 native land needing you back uh, that you would consider coming or is just Athens too too sunny and gorgeous and fascinating? Nathan, do you know how much my rent costs in Athens? I pay 300 euro a month for a beautiful one bedroom apartment with a huge terrace. And like I talk to my friends in New York who are like, oh, yeah, I got a great deal on a flat. It's only like two thousand five hundred dollars. And I'm like, yeah, I think until the economic part of the revolution comes in and we have like a huge change on that angle, um, you know, I, I have a, a lot of love and respect for my for my citizens, for my fellow citizens in the U.S. Um, and I do, uh, you know, I do recognize some some facets of American democracy that are really helpful and, and hopeful. But I feel pretty good for the moment here in here in Greece. <laughs> that is that is an absolutely undefeated argument in the history of mankind. <laughs> 300 euro rent yeah. will never go down. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, fuck it. Let's all after we vote here, uh, then let's all just emigrate to the to the home of democracy. Uh, having safely ensconced a uh, new leadership. No, I think you <laughs> like I, I I must say when I when I when I first started reading about what was happening back home, I felt so hopeful for the first time in a really long time. And I know for a lot of Americans, it's really disorienting to see this kind of imagery coming from our country. And maybe just because I'm a bit used to living in countries where political protest and demonstration is really 
um, much more entangled with your your day-to-day life. So it's not really surprising or shocking. But this is an absolutely historic and incredibly necessary moment in in the U.S. And and I do, you know, I I do with some reservations. I'm I'm choosing maybe a bit naively, but I'm going to hold on to it. I'm choosing to see this as as a positive step forward. It it absolutely could be. I mean, there's no doubt you you could absolutely be right. And, you know, we don't need anybody to mention that you could be totally wrong. <laughs> well, let's, yeah, I mean, we <laughs> but should just also the say idea that. that you could be right is amazing. <laughs> it, it is totally amazing. It could be there could be something actually beautiful uh, at, at the end of this and and uh, and 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 real change. Um, so, yeah, that uh, hope is a discipline. <laughs> I'm going to start practicing it. Michelle Borak is an American living in Mongolia, the child of a Korean immigrant to the States, an early contributor to Roads and Kingdoms, and the woman whose in-laws helped us kill that goat many years ago. I talked to her a few days before the police started rioting across the U.S., so there's a bit more COVID and a bit less George Floyd in this conversation. Here are me and Michelle. All right. Expats. Expats. you call yourself an expat? It's kind of a colonial term. Oh, it's sort of the worst. Uh, reluctantly, like it just for ease of, of understanding my context here. But yeah, it's it's a little terrible. I'm an immigrant. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm an immigrant. You know, I married a national and I moved here. Um, and, you know, I'm here on a spousal visa. I'm an immigrant. I get to work legally. I don't get to vote. Um, yeah, I don't. I'm not entitled to to state support beyond you know support offered as a as a as a worker. But yeah, I'm an immigrant, which you know my mother was an immigrant. <laughs> I'm just I'm you know I'm just continuing continuing the family legacy. So so tell me tell me where you're at and what it's like there. I'm in Darhan, which is in northern Mongolia, where where the uh, sort of the, the the furthest north big city, but it's pretty much a small town. Um, we're not terribly far from the Russian border, um, and we're about three hours, three hundred kilometers. Why well, three hours on a good day? Uh, but it's about three hundred kilometers from Ulaanbaatar, the capital, which is where. The government is the international airport, um, all of the government agencies. Everything is sort of like life. Uh, all, all the essentials are there. Um, so, so it's been strange because we're we're also a bit, you know, cut off when it comes to things like exiting the country, needing um, better medical resources, and so. You know, when when this whole thing went down, which for us was in January, um, we we actually had just come back from a trip to the U.S. to do Christmas in in Memphis. And we came back in the first week of January and by uh, maybe or uh, yeah, yeah, it was the first week of January. One week later, um, Wuhan had erupted and um, and Tara's school was closed the following week and the lockdown was in place. So that was, I think it was like January 21st, if I recall. Um, so Which we, is in, incredibly early by the U.S. timeline. It, it was. And, and, you know, 
I was like, you know what? I get it. I'm freaked out. Like it, we have this porous border. We are sort of the first big stop. Um, there's a border port called Altenbulak, which is the, at the Russian border. Um, and so there are a lot of Mongolians who study uh, at universities in, 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 in Russia and a lot in Ulanud, which is uh, sort of a kind of, it's pretty Mongolian when you're there, but it's Russia. Uh, but we had a lot of people that were crossing the border on foot and by car and, um, and then by train. So they're, they're coming down sort of through Darhan. And so Darhan became pretty quickly on maybe starting in like late February, they opened up a quarantine facility here. So because they had closed the universities, they were using the dormitories to house all these people who were coming in from the Russian border. So they were basically putting them on a bus, checking their temperatures, separating them if they had a fever or not, and then um, sorting them and then putting them into these dormitories. And so the dormitories are maybe like three miles away from our house. So there was a, you know, I had the little like freak out like, oh my God, the Corona's here and it's three miles away. It, it never, it never really emerged. Cause what would happen was if they tested positive, they immediately transported them to UB. And UB, UB is where they have the doctors and, and the, the, the medical team that are ready to respond. Um, but yeah, it, we, we've, we've had rumors. There was, a, there was a truck driver and his wife who tested positive. And, and the, the sort of scandalous thing they had done was a very sort of Mongolian thing, too. They had, they had been traveling in Europe. And when, and they, when they entered, uh, their son is a police officer and so he kind of had the heads up, oh, they're crossing the border. And because he's a police officer, he's like, I'm going to go hug my mom and say hi. And, you know, and then they'll go into quarantine. And so <laughs> people were like freaking out, like, oh, who talked to this guy? And, and it was, you know, people, people are scared. People are legitimately afraid because they do understand that if something happens here, we're just fucked, you know? <laughs> that I I um I love the idea of a of a of a cop whose whose crime is hugging his mom. <laughs> he did. I mean, it was the sweetest quaint. sweetest terrible thing to do. But you know, he wanted to hug his mom. Yeah, we've, so. we've got uh, we've got some tougher police problems here. But but yes, yeah. I I get it. That's still a breach of quarantine. It must be strange, interesting, uh, horrifying to watch all of this kind of sputtering republic that is America right now, do you, th have you thought about it in terms of your own life decisions and where you're raising your family? Uh, is it, <sighs> is it time to write off America as, as an immigrant to Mongolia? I, you know what, I'll tell you, uh, this is, this is like the first time I've ever seriously considered, like maybe, I don't need this citizenship. Like I, this passport isn't worth anything anyway, right? Like I can't get in or out of the country unless I have a Mongolian passport. Um, yeah, I left in 2012. So I got out while the getting was good. Um, you know, I good years. Yeah. <laughs> I like, and, and it, I, it's so hard. Like you, you feel, well, I feel like at times guilty, like when, when something horrible happens in the U S and it's uh, an embarrassment to, 
um, who the American people are and what the country represents. Um, I feel guilty for being here where I can't get out in the street and get mad about it. I can't, um, you know, I, I have to like Skype call my representatives, which is really annoying. Um, but you know, every once in a while I do it. Um, there, you know, I vote by mail, you know, like all this stuff that just feels really, really ultra passive. And, um, the times right now don't really call for passive measures. You know, they, they call for extreme action and like acting out on like collective rage and individual rage. And it's, you know, here I like my friends and neighbors, you know, who aren't American, um, don't have any understanding of that and, and can't really relate. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a little unsettling. It's, it's just, it's like living two different lives, you know? The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. As a reminder, these episodes are now free and available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week, and we will meet you there.